Hey, we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bibles today, open to Acts chapter 19 or fire up your tablet or your phone. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, our ushers have some that you can use. Just wave at them as they go down the aisle. We'd love to put a Bible in your hand because we are going to have today an incredible study in Acts chapter 19. And here's what you need to know. As you move in your Bibles towards Acts, Acts chapter 19, here's what you need to know. Not every Sunday at Journey Church International is designed to be a Sunday they could change the direction of your life. Like, we don't come every Sunday and think, man, if this Sunday goes well, this might change somebody's life forever. As a matter of fact, not every passage of Scripture is designed to motivate you to move. But Acts chapter 19 is one of those passages of Scripture, and today is one of those days. As we study the church at Ephesus, today is one of those days that you can't just remain where you are. You either today, you're going to be forced by the end of our time today after we learn what we learn, you're going to be forced to take a step forward spiritually or you're going to be forced to take a step backward spiritually. But today is not a day that's going to allow people to remain where they are in their faith because of the challenges that are going to be presented to us. And I feel so strongly today. I started preparing this message weeks ago, really leaned into finishing it on Tuesday. I feel so strongly today that there are some people in our church that just need to spend some time with God this morning that I feel like I could not even preach today, that I could just have Jamie get up, start playing the keys, and I could say, you know, if, if you just need to spend a few moments with God today, just, just come. Like, I believe there's some people who all week long have needed God to touch their life. I believe there's some people who all week long have been, pray, have been praying like the prophets, oh God, where, where are you? I believe we have some people that all week long have been dealing with some things in their own life, but they've not yet taken time to talk to God about him. And if given time, maybe you would get something done spiritually in your life. And today is going to be a day where we provide you with that at the end of the message. We don't often give people a chance to respond and come forward and pray. But I just feel in my spirit as I have prepared what I'm going to teach you from Acts chapter 19 that today is a day that some people are going to have to talk to God a little bit after we're done. So if you're in your Bibles, Acts chapter 19, we enter one of the greatest texts in the Bible. And I'm telling you, I just believe in my spirit, especially after our first service, this is just going to be one of those days. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's just going to be one of those days. Turn to him and say, now turn to the person you weren't planning to talk to today, the other neighbor, and say, it's just going to be, it's just going to be one of those days. Because this could just be one of those days in your life if you will open your heart to what God has to say. So Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 20 say this. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, the apostle Paul, took the road through the interior and he arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? 
Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them. He overpowered them, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the, Lord spread, the word of the Lord spread widely, and it grew in power. We just read about the birth of the church in Ephesus. Last week, we studied Revelation chapter 2. We heard Jesus speak to us from the future, from the book of Revelation, back to our past. And here's what Jesus said about the state of the church. Do what Ephesus did at first. Like the church at Ephesus, the way they started is the way church is supposed to be. And what we've just read in Acts chapter 19 is such a powerful movement of God. It's such a powerful movement of personal revival in the lives of people that if we can see what happened in Acts chapter 19... And we can figure out a way to apply it to our life. If we can see the marks, the spiritual marks of a move of God, and we can look at our own life and say, do I have these marks in my life? It kind of gives us kind of a map of how to move towards personal revival in our own life. And today, it's my goal that you as an individual will move into a season of personal spiritual revival in your life. Today, it's my hope that as a congregation, maybe together, we can move as a, as a church body into a spirit of revival. How? By looking at these marks and by asking ourselves where we are spiritually and where we need to move spiritually. Because Acts 19 gives us some marks of movement. The first one is that the spirit was strong. In, in Acts chapter 19 in the church of Ephesus, the spirit was strong. If you haven't already, reach inside your bullets and take out your notes so that you can follow along. Because we see in Acts chapter 19, the spirit was strong. It was so strong that it was third hand at times. It was literally rubbing off of Paul onto things. And people had so much faith in the Jesus that Paul followed. They're like, I'll have some of what he's having. And it worked for them. They were placing their faith third hand in what they had seen Jesus do, but their faith was so strong that Jesus was working through that. So the spirit was strong, but at first, the spirit was absent. It was non-existent, which leads us to a first mark in a personal move of God in our own life. Look at verses 1 and 2, because this is kind of curious that a church would start and it would have this answer. It said, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior. He arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard of that. We've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. They were going to church. They had been mentored in the scripture. They'd been studying under Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. And Paul said, tell me how the spirit is doing in your life. Tell me how you're feeling, God. And they're like, we, we don't even know what that means. And sadly, there are some people who are sitting in church today that when I say, tell me how the Holy Spirit moved in your life this week, they're like, I don't, I don't even know what that means. Tell me how you felt God in your life this week. And they're like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know that I did. And I don't want to get into a deep theology today. So, you know, I'm not going to teach. We know that when you become a Christian, every, every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart when you become a Christian. But there's, there's a level of a daily walk with Jesus that allows the presence to be felt, that allows the presence to be heard, that allows the presence of God to be experienced in your life. And Paul said, you are missing walking with Jesus. And some of you in here are missing walking with Jesus. And it's because you're stalled at the very first step of your Christian journey. Some of you are lacking a strong connection to the Spirit. And for some of you, it's because you haven't taken your first spiritual step. You've not made your first spiritual transaction, which means the Spirit has whispered to you, here's what you need to do. 
And because you've not responded to that, it can't tell you the next thing to do. Do you know your first step of obedience to the Spirit of God as a Christian is public baptism after you've become a Christian? It's the very first thing you have to do. It's the very first word that the Spirit breathes into your ear. Now that you're a Christian, you need to be publicly baptized and you need to tell people about your Christianity. It's one of your first spiritual conversations and interactions with God. I don't think God moves past His step till we move past His step. And this was missing in the timeline of the Ephesians faith. Look at verses 3 through 7. We have a missing element of allowing the Spirit to be more present in their life. In verse 2, Paul said... um, did you receive the Holy Spirit? I said, we don't even know what that means. Verse 3, so Paul asked, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all who did that. When we look at the timeline of the Ephesian faith, I want you to hear this, especially if you grew up, grew up in a very traditional, conservative church, I I want you to listen to the timeline of the Ephesians' faith. The Ephesians at some point in their past had had heard that the Messiah was going to come, had heard that there was a Messiah that offered salvation, had heard that a spiritual movement of God was possible in their future. They, they'd heard what John was saying, so they went ahead and they, they were baptized. They were baptized for repentance, which means we realize that we're sinful, we need a Savior, we hear the Savior's coming. So they were baptized as a sign of repentance, but they were baptized in order to, so that they could look forward to meeting Jesus one day. And in the future, they would place their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. And once they personally connected with Jesus, Paul said, then you are baptized to identify with Jesus and publicly tell everyone you're a follower of Jesus. Now, let me tell you what happens in a lot of traditional churches. Churches specifically that baptize infants or babies. If you go back and study the theology of it, the infant baptism is a baptism of repentance. What does that mean? It's a baptism of cleansing. It's mom and dad saying, I want my kids clean before God. That child can't stand up and say, I love Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus, I need Jesus to forgive me. But the mom and dad are saying, I realize that my son or daughter needs Jesus, that they need forgiveness. So they bat- there's like this baptism of repentance. Not everyone has it, but many do. A baptiz- baptism of repentance as a child that says, I just... I want them to be clean before God, and I have a future expectation that one day they'll meet Jesus. And then one day in the future, they meet Jesus. And after they meet Jesus, they decide to follow Jesus. And the Spirit begins to live in their life, and they choose on their own that they want to follow Jesus. Paul said, at that point, you then of your own accord, not because your mom and dad wanted you to, but because you want to, you then are baptized to publicly identify with Jesus and to be obedient to the spirit that you want to take over your life. Some of you are stuck like the Ephesians is step number three. You've had a baptism of repentance. You have said yes to Jesus and you're following Jesus, but there's this spiritual stall between the point of your first step, believing in Jesus, and your next step, being baptized to tell everyone, here is what happened. And if you look quickly at the next three things on your sermon notes, you need to realize that, that there's a spiritual stall that's not allowing you to experience all God has for you. And it's not that God, God's holding out on you, but you're holding out on God. But if you're holding out on God, you're going to feel the absence of the full measure of His Spirit in your life. Because God is saying, I'd love to tell you about steps two, three, four, and 5, but you've got to take step 1. It's a big one. And I don't want you to miss the first step. Have you ever missed the first step walking up or down steps? It, it, gets, it gets real ugly if you miss the first one. And what we see here is the Spirit is saying to you, first step, now that you've 
come to Jesus. Like the Ephesians. I know you did the prior baptism, but now that you've come to Jesus, be baptized, tell, tell everybody about it. It's your first step. And if you're holding out on God and saying, no, I'm not going to do that, you're missing all that God has for you. You say, well, Christian, you know, my, my faith is just kind of a private thing. It wasn't intended to be. Every time in the book of Acts, people were baptized. It says they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Say, so what does that mean? When you pull me out of the water, is a weird thing going to happen? No. All this is symbolic of is people, by their baptism and after their baptism, they let the world know what God was doing. In Acts chapter 2, it was actual languages where people were saying, this is who Jesus was. Baptism symbolized that I'm going to live my life to tell the world about Jesus. Might not memorize a bunch of languages or ever go speak in tongues and tell someone in a different language that I can't understand who Jesus is. But my life is now lived to tell the world about Jesus and to let them know who God is. That's what this means. Christians publicly declaring the gospel of Jesus and the glory of God. That, that's what that means. That's what baptism is. That's what baptism does. And we see the Holy Spirit's power in the early church gave evidence that personal faith was always intended to move public. And the first step of the public faith, the first step of your announcement to the world of who Jesus is, is your baptism. So inside your bulletin, we put this card. Because there are some of you, many of you, probably, who are stalled in your faith. And Acts chapter 19 says, you can't just stay there. You're stalled. You're stalled waiting on this step, praying through this step, wrestling with God through this step. And every time I talk about this, you get hot, you get sweaty, you get angry, you get convicted, you get challenged, you get hopeful, you get excited, and you do nothing. It's time to stop doing nothing. Take the card, write your name down at the end of the service, throw it in the offering basket, and let's ask God to have the Spirit of God be strong in your life. I love what happened in Ephesus. It says there were 12 men in all. Jesus had 12 disciples. The nation of Israel had 12 tribes. Moses sent out 12 spies. Ephesus had 12 people in their church. That's not a very big church. But they had 12 people who were all in, and that was enough for God because God is always willing to start with a small group if they'll follow him completely and welcome his spirit to guide their lives. And here's what I want you to know. I'm in. He has one at Journey. I'm in. If we have 11 more that will say, I'm in. Just whatever Jesus wants. I'm in. What could God do with our church today? If he could touch the world through Ephesus in a day where there was no internet, there was no TV, there was no social media, if the whole world could hear about Jesus from 12 men in Ephesus, what could happen if 12 people in Lee Summit would say, I'm all in with the technology that our world has? I want you to know I'm all in. And I'm hoping we'll have at least 11, if not 111, if not 511, if not 1,011, that will one day say, me too, let's go. What could God do with our church if the spirit was strong? But here's what we also realize. Mark number two, when we look at the church of Ephesus, we realize that when the spirit becomes really strong, the obstinate people have to go. It's not that they're forced out, but it gets very uncomfortable when everyone around you is allowing Jesus to, to kind of take over their spirit to be the hard-hearted one in the bunch. Look at Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. It says, Paul entered the synagogue, and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. Now, this word obstinate, in the original Greek language that Luke wrote it in, in the book of Acts, this word obstinate means becoming hardened and disobedient over an extended period of time. It's this thought that between now and some point in your past, you just began to say no to the things of God. Or you entered a season that was so difficult that whatever sensitivity you had to the things of God, just, it just began to get harder for God to penetrate your heart. 
the best picture of this word obstinate is the picture of a callus. I don't know if you have any calluses on your hand, maybe where you write or where you work out, um, or if you do manual labor where you, know, where you work, or maybe if you're on a, run, a runner on the sides of your feet. You know, a callus actually builds up to protect you. A callus builds up because you've got some sensitive skin that can't take the wear and tear that's coming. So a callus will slowly build up to protect what's there. But you, if you have a, a good enough callus, like you can take a needle and like just poke it in your callus and you won't be able to feel anything. And for some of you, that's how your heart is. And like no matter what God does, he cannot get through to your heart because layer after layer of hardness has come, whether it's just been disobedience, whether it's been rebellion, whether it's the most difficult season in your life that you've ever lived through, something has tried to protect your spiritual feelings, the doubt, the fun, the whatever. Something has tried to protect you spiritually, and it's really ended up keeping the Spirit of God from speaking to your heart. And here's what you know if you've ever really experienced a callus. The bigger the callus, the bigger the mess comes when you have to take it off. I don't know if you've ever ripped open a callus, but they don't come off a little bit at a time. And when you rip open a big callus, it makes a big mess. And for some of you, the only way God's going to be able to get your attention again is to to create some kind of big mess in your life that'll allow that callus to be removed because you won't file it down every now and then and let God speak to your heart over time something, maybe sin, maybe difficulty, maybe the sin of someone else, maybe a bad relationship, something has hardened you, maybe a bad experience, and you just don't let God speak to you the way that he used to speak to you. And it says these people who live with obstinate hearts, they end up publicly maligning the way. Well, what does that mean? It means the outward lifestyle of obstinate Christians make the way unattractive to those outside the church. Paul said, listen, the way you're living, when you get hard-hearted spiritually... Your life makes Christianity very unattractive for people who are trying to see Jesus in you. He said it this way to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Paul said, we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Have you ever smelled a pleasing aroma? Have you ever gotten out to Arrowhead on game day and smelled the, the tailgating going on? That's a pleasing aroma, even to a vegetarian. Uh, you, so you know what I'm talking about, like pleasing, when they put Jack Stack in. It, uh, on that Chipman Road exit. That was, a, that was a pleasing smell getting off 470. Paul said Christians have a pleasing aroma to their life when they're living for God. But he says to one were the aroma that brings death, to the other were an aroma that brings life. Who is equal to such a task? Paul said there are some Christians your life stinks spiritually. And when people get around you, they think Christianity stinks. And they think Jesus stinks. And they think God stinks. And they think church stinks because of your life. You stink spiritually, is what Paul is saying. And Paul said, it's the obstinance. It's what you've allowed to build up over your heart that allows you to live without a consciousness of who God is or what his spirit's trying to say. It's just, it's just, it's just a who cares attitude. Paul said, that, that makes Christianity look very bad, and it stinks spiritually. And somebody said, well, that's just the way I am. No, that's just the way you were. But when you meet Jesus, you're supposed to change. It's not a good excuse to say my life stinks spiritually, but that's just the way I am. No, that that might be the way you were, but your life is not supposed to stink spiritually if you're a Christian. And the reality is if you want God to move in your life, the obstinate heart has to go. A strong spirit connects best with a soft heart. And what's crazy in Acts chapter 9, we see this 
crazy picture of spiritually weak people getting their butts kicked by the devil. And, and every time I read that, I think, man, is, is this a picture of my life? Is this a picture of your life? Let me read verses 13 through 16 to you. Is this a picture of your life spiritually? Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had an evil spirit jumped on them. He overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Let me ask you, has the devil kicked your butt this week? Are you running around naked and bleeding spiritually every week? Are you limping into church if you make it to church at all because you are just so beat up spiritually? Has the devil won this week? I don't know what round of your fight that you're in. I just know that every three minutes the bell goes off again and we have to go fight again. And there are a lot of Christians who every week are, are living naked and bleed. They just, they're beat up spiritually. They're losing spiritually. And in the church at Ephesus, we see that this is not God's will for us. If you run around naked and bleeding spiritually with a hard heart that's slowly hardened to the point where God just can't break through anymore, listen, that can change. That can change. That has to change. And as we look at Acts chapter 19, we realize two things that can help that change if you will work to put these before God and beg Him for your help. Mark number 3, we see one of the things that changed in the book of Ephesus when weak Christians started getting their tails kicked by the devil, we see that Jesus began to be held in high honor. And when people once again put him on the platform that he was supposed to be on and they just look to him in trust and in hope and in faith and as their standard, things begin to turn in their life. We said last week that Jesus is the only proper motivation and sustainable purpose for the Christian life. And I believe that wholeheartedly. There's no church, no pastor, no Christian boyfriend or girlfriend, no Christian spouse, no Christian parent, no Christian child that can really make you live for Jesus the way you need to live for Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus can do that. He's the only one worth living for. And I believe if Christians lived like this was true, non-Christians might actually believe it, but we don't. It's Jesus and. Tell me what gives you a bad week, and I'll give you what your and is. Jesus and this give me peace. Jesus and this give me comfort. Jesus and this give me hope. Jesus and this lets me know that God is good. Tell me what's on the other side of your and, and I'll tell you what you're leaning on along with Jesus that is going to be shaky in your life. I believe if more Christians live like Jesus was the most important thing in their life, more non-Christians might actually believe that Jesus was really important. But when he's not important to Christians, why should he be important to them? So, man, what do I do if that's not where I am right now, Christian? What do I do if I'm in a season where I just know my heart is hard? I don't want to say that I have a hard heart, but I know this, I, I can't hear God, and I know he doesn't shut up, which means I must have shut him out somehow. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm in sin, but something, something is, is just separating me from who God has been in the past. What do I do? We look at the church at Ephesus and we see four things. Confession, repentance, abandonment, and community. It all kind of comes together in three verses. Confession, repentance, abandonment, and community. Let me read these three verses for you. Verses 18 through 20. How did they get it turned around? First, they made Jesus really important, but it said many of those who believed now came and they openly confessed what they had done. 
A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together. They burned them publicly, and when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, in what way? Confession, repentance, abandonment, community. In this way, when people confessed and repented and abandoned the past and lived in community, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely, and it grew in power. Four things, confession. Confession is a word that means basically you agree with God. And in some cases, it's agreeing with God that the sin in your life is wrong. In another sense, it might be agreeing with God that this this season in your life is unhealthy for you spiritually. But you're not sure how to end it. Confession just says like they came in verse 18, it says they came openly. They confessed what was going on. Man, I'm having a tough week. Having a tough month. Having a tough year. I don't think my marriage is going to make it. My kids have gone crazy. I've lost my job. I am going to go bankrupt. They just began to talk to God about what was going on in their life. They came and they confessed. I need a new direction. Which leads to this great verse in Scripture. 1 John 1, 9. Say, Christian, man, I've done so much wrong. I've asked God to forgive me and I keep doing stuff. I've been asking God to forgive me for the same thing since I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And I still do it. I had an anger problem at 10 and now at 40 I'm still screaming at my husband and kids. I had a problem with gossip at eight that I got in trouble for in third grade. And now at 50, it's causing conflict in my life again. And I've asked God to forgive me a hundred times. What, what do I do? You ask again. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, if we just say, God, I'm getting it wrong, I need help. He is faithful and he is just and he will forgive you of your sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, confession is a change of heart. Confession is publicly saying, God, I can't do this anymore. This season, this sin, these circumstances, I'm not going to make it if I keep going that direction, God. And confession leads to repentance. If confession is a change of heart, repentance is a change in direction. The The word repentance actually means change direction. That's what it means. Confession is in your heart saying something has to change. Repentance is in your life making the commitments that will actually bring change. It's funny, it's much easier to confess than to repent because it's easier to say, God, this is wrong, than to actually do what will begin to fix it, even if it's really, really difficult. But that's what repentance is. And it might not just be sin. If it's sin, repentance is saying, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop saying that. I'm going to stop treating people that way. I'm going to quit living that way. God, you've spoken to my heart, this is wrong. I'm going to make a commitment to try not to do that. But it might not be sin. It might just be the condition of your heart that demands change. And that change demands a request of God. And maybe you're here and you, you need change and it demands change, but you haven't been able to stop this week and really focus on God and say, help me, because you just haven't had time. And man, if we don't provide you time, it's, man, if we don't have time to pray at church... Maybe we're all just a tad too busy, even on Sunday morning. And then there's abandonment. The church in Ephesus came and they realized there were some things in their life that were going wrong and they committed to change them. But it says they came and they brought their stuff and they burned it. Now, I'm not going to ask you to burn anything today, but if I could start a fire up here that you could literally bring sin to or a season to, or a circumstance to, and say, God, I'm giving all of this to you, and I'm not going to take it home with me today, I would do that. The school wouldn't let us have church here next week, but I, 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 like maybe when we have a church, we'll put fire on the altar, and you just come burn stuff. I, I don't know. If that, if that works, we'll do it. But there was this abandonment where people said, I'm, I'm done with this. 
I'm done with this and I cannot keep it in my life. Abandonment is giving up something or maybe someone completely that stands in the way of breaking free from sin. This is something in your life or someone in your life that when you're around them, you're not who you're supposed to be spiritually. And you confess that and you've committed to change that. But if you're not willing to walk away, nothing is going to change. Say, Christian, what if that upsets some people? Are you living for some people? Are you living for God? Galatians 1.10 says it this way, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I'm still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So when Jesus says, you've got to do it this way, even if my whole life says, we're probably not going to be close to you if you do it that way, you go with Jesus and you just trust. You just do. And then there's this thought of community. It's beautiful in Ephesus. Big steps, confession, repentance, abandonment. But we see none of them did it alone. Pushing through the growing pains of Christian life with friends and supporters is what community looks like. It's saying, I can't do it alone. And in Ephesus, they didn't do it alone. It says they came together. I saw a quote this week that defined community by a church this way. Community is a group of people you have to fight through to throw your life away. That's a great picture of Christian friends and supporters. Community is the group of people that you have to go through them before you throw everything away. Do you have those people in your life? Do you have the people that will knock on your door at midnight? To let you not go make a mistake? Do you have the people that will come pick you up at 3 a.m. from somewhere so you don't throw it all away? Do you have the person that will call you up and go have a coffee and say, I see this in you. What are we going to do? You're not going to make it. In Ephesus, they had community, confession, repentance, abandonment. It's the thought of bringing the current reality of your life to Jesus so that you can exchange what is for what can be even though right now you're not sure how that's going to happen. It's a spiritual exchange. God, I want this in my future. I have this now. I am not sure how to connect the dots, so I'm going to give it to Jesus. Some of you are saying, I agree with everything you said, and I'm going to do that. When? That's my question, when? If not today, when? We taught on the book of Revelation last week. In Revelation chapter 6, we're we're introduced to a group of saints who have been killed in the great tribulation. And they're in heaven and they're, they're waiting for God to kind of finish his work so that the world can be restored. And they had this question of Jesus in Revelation 6.10, how long? How long, Lord? How long is it going to be this way? How long until people finally decide that today is enough and tomorrow has to be different? How, how long, Lord, until it's all made right? Hebrews chapter 12 says there's a great cloud of witnesses in heaven that watch us run our race. How many of you have a great-grandparent or a grandparent or a parent or a son or a daughter or a former spouse who's sitting up in heaven who every now and then watching your life bumps Jesus and says, How long? How long till they get it right? How long till they get it together? How long till they give everything to you, Jesus? When's it going to happen? I believe this has to be one of the most asked questions in heaven, which is why it's presented to us in Revelation 6. How long? How long till the people on planet Earth get it going? This is the final Sunday of our third year. Next year we'll begin the fourth. I can't wait for the fourth year at our church. But the vision of our church has always been and always will be people moving towards Jesus. And some of you have started in that direction. You've made a decision, but you've not followed through with a commitment. You've made a commitment, but you've not followed through with action. You began to follow through, but then you failed, so you stopped and you're stalled. My question to you is, for how long? 
How long will you remain stalled? How long are you going to wait to get baptized after hearing that's your next critical big step spiritually? How long are you going to wait? How much longer are you going to let your heart have calluses on it instead of bringing it to Jesus and say, just tear it off, whatever it takes, tear it off. I trust you to clean up the mess when it's done. Why not bring your stuff to Jesus and get rid of it like they did in Acts chapter 19? Why not bring Jesus your hurt from your past, your pride in your presence and get rid of it? Why not bring Jesus your stuff from your resentment to your relationships that are bad and say, Jesus, I'm going to give it to you. Why not from the hang-ups to the habits in your life that make you not be as close to Jesus as you need to, why not give them up today? From the anger that you have in your spirit to an addiction that lies deep in your DNA, why don't you bring that to Jesus? From an experience that hurts you so bad, from an ego that hurts others so bad, why not bring that to Jesus? From a hurt you've experienced to a hope you've never realized, why not bring it to Jesus? How long will it take for you to bring your heart to God and say, it's broken? I remember when my kids, I'd give them presents on Christmas and we put together their presents and we wouldn't do the batteries right or they would go busted. I remember when my kids used to bring their toys to me and say, Dad, it's broken. And we figure out how to turn it on or change your batteries or fix it. When as spiritual children are we going to recognize that our heart is broken and are we going to step up to God and say, God, it's broken. My heart is broken. Maybe my sin, maybe my circumstances may just be the season, but God, it's broken. It's getting hard. It's getting calloused. I'm scared of where it's going to lead to. It's broken. Will you fix it? I say we shouldn't wait any longer. I say today can change everything if we confess. Just tell God what's going on if we repent. Commit to make changes if we abandon. Walk away from things that we know are damaging with us. And if we engage in community that will help us keep our spiritual commitments, why not today? How long? Why not today? Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning?